Welcome back to another World Audiobook. So happy to have you here. As always, thank you guys for tuning in and a huge shout out to all the new subscribers on YouTube. I'm so excited to see the channel growing. It's really awesome. Uh, it was really just picked up. Uh, I love that I can now easily publish the, all the, the episodes straight over there to YouTube. So thank you for everybody subscribing, uh, liking the videos, sharing the videos, as well as leaving comments. It always makes my day to hear from people. I got a comment from, uh, looks like uh, Judy, I'm gonna guess. Judy Kingsman 6132. <laughs> She's. Uh, they say, your French accent is very amusing, but it uh, has not stopped me from listening. I know Arsene Lupin very, stories very well. Keep up the great work with a heart and a smiley face. So, yeah, I apologize for the French accent. I definitely, um, I think I made a wise choice in not doing uh, all the entire book in a French accent. Uh, but I hope you guys can uh, bear with me through the, uh, the attempts at French accents. And uh, just thank you so much for listening and your encouraging words. I, I love doing this, and it is so cool. Um, I, I couldn't find a, a, a super great version of, of this book so I'm, I'm really happy to be able to be putting it out into the world so if you know of somebody who would enjoy this story share it with them that's the best way to help the podcast grow and i just really appreciate it again if you want to go check out youtube make sure to subscribe there um really happy to see that growing and uh, definitely want to be putting more effort into youtube as the channel grows so uh without further ado let's get right into the next chapter of Boston Lupin. eight the black pearl a violent ringing of the bell awakened the concierge of Number 9 Avenue Hoche. She pulled the doorstring, grumbling. I thought everybody was in. It must be three o'clock. Perhaps it is someone for the doctor, muttered her husband. At that moment, a voice inquired. Dr. Arel, what floor? Third floor, left, but the doctor won't go out at night. He must go out tonight. The visitor entered the vestibule, ascended to the first floor, the second, the third, and without stopping at the doctor's door, he continued to the fifth floor. There he tried two keys. One of them fitted the lock. Ah, good, he murmured. That simplifies the business wonderfully. But before I commence work, I had better arrange for my retreat. Let me see. Have I sufficient time to rouse the doctor and be dismissed by him? Not yet. A few minutes more. At the end of ten minutes, he descended the stairs, grumbling noisily about the doctor. The concierge opened the door for him and heard it click behind him. But the door did not lock, as the man had quickly inserted a piece of iron in the lock in such a manner that the bolt could not enter. Then, quietly, he entered the house again, unknown to the concierge. In case of alarm, his retreat was assured. Noiselessly, he ascended to the fifth floor once more. In the antechamber, by the light of his electric lantern, he placed his hat and overcoat on one of the chairs, took a seat on another, and covered his heavy shoes with felt slippers. Oof, here I am, and how simple it was. I wonder why more people do not adopt the profitable and pleasant occupation of burglar. With a little care and reflection, it becomes a most delightful profession. Not too quiet and monotonous, of course, as it would then become wearisome. He unfolded a detailed plan of the apartment. Let me commence by locating myself. Here I see the vestibule in which I am sitting, on the street front, the drawing room, the boudoir, and the dining room. Useless to waste any time there, as it appears that the Countess has a deplorable taste. Not a bibelo of any value. Now, let's get down to business. Ah, here is a corridor. It must lead to the bedchambers. At a distance of three meters, I should come to the door of the wardrobe closet which connects with the chamber of the Countess. He folded his plan, extinguished his lantern, and proceeded down the corridor, counting his distance thus. One meter, 
Two meters. Three meters. Here is the door. Mon dieu, how easy it is. Only a small, simple bolt now separates me from the chamber, and I know that the bolt is located exactly one meter, forty-three centimeters from the floor. So that, thanks to a small incision I am about to make, I can soon get rid of the bolt. He drew from his pocket the necessary instruments. Then the following idea occurred to him. Suppose, by chance, the door is not bolted. I will try it first. He turned the knob, and the door opened. My brave Lupin, surely fortune favours you. What's to be done now? You know the situation of the rooms. You know the place in which the Countess hides the Black Pearl. Therefore, in order to secure the Black Pearl, you have simply to be more silent than silence, more invisible than darkness itself. Arsène Lupin was employed fully a half-hour in opening the second door, a glass door that led to the Countess's bedchamber. But he accomplished it with so much skill and precaution that even had the Countess been awake, she would not have heard the slightest sound. According to the plan of the rooms that he holds, he has merely to pass around a reclining chair and, beyond that, a small table close to the bed. On the table there was a box of letter paper, and the black pearl was concealed in that box. He stooped and crept cautiously over the carpet, following the outlines of the reclining chair. When he reached the extremity of it, he stopped in order to repress the throbbing of his heart. Although he was not moved by any sense of fear, he found it impossible to overcome the nervous anxiety that one usually feels in the midst of profound silence. That circumstance astonished him, because he had passed through many more solemn moments without the slightest trace of emotion. No danger threatened him, then why did his heart throb like an alarm bell? Was it that sleeping woman who affected him? Was it the proximity of another pulsating heart? He listened, and thought he could discern the rhythmical beating of a person asleep. It gave him confidence, like the presence of a friend. He sought and found the armchair, then, by slow, cautious movements, advanced toward the table, feeling ahead of him with outstretched arm. His right hand touched one of the feet of the table. Ah! Now he had simply to rise, take the pearl, and escape. That was fortunate, as his heart was leaping in his breast like a wild beast, and made so much noise that he feared it would waken the Countess. By a powerful effort of the will, he subdued the wild throbbing in his heart, and was about to rise from the floor when his left hand encountered, lying on the floor, an object which he recognized as a candlestick. An overturned candlestick. A moment later, his hand encountered another object, a clock, one of those small traveling clocks covered with leather. Well, what had happened? He could not understand. That candlestick, that clock... Why were those articles not in their accustomed places? Ah, what had happened in the dread silence of the night? Suddenly, a cry escaped him. He had touched, oh, some strange, unutterable thing. No, no, he thought. It cannot be. It is some fantasy of my excited brain. For twenty seconds, thirty seconds, he remained motionless, terrified, his forehead bathed with perspiration, and his fingers still retained the sensation of that dreadful contact. Making a desperate effort, he ventured to extend his arm again. Once more, his hand encountered that strange, unutterable thing. He felt it. He must feel it, and find out what it is. He found that it was hair. Human hair. And a human face. And that face was cold, almost icy. However frightful the circumstances may be, a man like Arsène Lupin controls himself and commands the situation as soon as he learns what it is. 
So Arsène Lupin quickly brought his lantern into use. A woman was lying before him, covered with blood. Her neck and shoulders were covered with gaping wounds. He leaned over her and made a closer examination. She was dead. Dead. Dead, he repeated with a bewildered air. He stared at those fixed eyes, that grim mouth, that livid flesh, and that blood. All that blood which had flowed over the carpet and congealed there in thick black spots. He arose and turned on the electric lights. Then he beheld all the marks of a desperate struggle. The bed was in a state of great disorder. On the floor, the candlestick and the clock, with the hands pointing to twenty minutes after eleven. Then, further away, an overturned chair. And everywhere there was blood. Spots of blood and pools of blood. And the black pearl? He murmured. The box of letter paper was in its place. He opened it eagerly. The jewel case was there, but it was empty. Feast! He murmured. You boasted of your good fortune too soon, my friend Lupin. With the Countess lying cold and dead, and the black pearl vanished, the situation is anything but pleasant. Get out of here as soon as you can, or you may get into serious trouble. Yet he did not move. Get out of here? Yes, of course. Any person would, except Arsène Lupin. He has something better to do. Now, to proceed in an orderly way. At all events, you have a clear conscience. Let us suppose that you are the commissary of police, and that you are proceeding to make an inquiry concerning this affair. Yes, but in order to do that, I require a clearer brain. Mine is muddled like a ragout. He tumbled into an armchair, with his clenched hands pressed against his burning forehead. The murder of the Avenue Hoche is one of those which have recently surprised and puzzled the Parisian public, and certainly I should never have mentioned the affair if the veil of mystery had not been removed by Arsène Lupin himself. No one knew the exact truth of the case. Who did know, from having met her in the Bois? The fair Lyotine Zolti the once-famous cantatrice, wife and widow of the Count d'Andeu, the Zanti, whose luxury dazzled all Paris some twenty years ago, the Zanti, who acquired an European reputation for the magnificence of her diamonds and pearls. It was said that she wore upon her shoulders the capital of several banking houses and the gold mines of numerous Australian companies. Skillful jewellers worked for Zanti as they had formerly wrought for kings and queens, and who does not remember the catastrophe in which all that wealth was swallowed up? Of all that marvellous collection, nothing remained except the famous Black Pearl. The Black Pearl. That is to say, a fortune, if she had wished to depart with it. But she preferred to keep it, to live in a commonplace apartment with her companion, her cook, and a manservant, rather than sell that inestimable jewel. There was a reason for it, a reason she was not afraid to disclose. The Black Pearl was the gift of an emperor. Almost ruined and reduced to the most mediocre existence, she remained faithful to the companion of her happy and brilliant youth. The Black Pearl never left her possession. She wore it during the day, and at night concealed it in a place known to her alone. All these facts, being republished in the columns of the public press, served to stimulate curiosity. And strange to say, but quite obvious to those who have the key to the mystery, the arrest of the presumed assassin only complicated the question and prolonged the excitement. Two days later, the newspapers published the following item. Information has reached us of the arrest of Victor Danègre, the servant of the Countess d'Andieu. The evidence against him is clear and convincing. 
on the silken sleeve of his liveried waistcoat, which Chief Detective Dudouis found in his garret between the mattresses of his bed, several spots of blood were discovered. In addition, a cloth-covered button was missing from that garment, and this button was found beneath the bed of the victim. It is supposed that, after dinner, in place of going to his room, Danera slipped into the wardrobe closet, and through the glass door had seen the Countess hide the precious black pearl. This is simply a theory, and yet unverified by any evidence. There is also another obscure point. At seven o'clock in the morning, Danera went to the tobacco shop on the Boulevard des Corsaires. The concierge and the shopkeeper both affirmed this fact. On the other hand, the countess's companion and cook, who sleep at the end of the hall, both declare that, when they arose at eight o'clock, the door of the antechamber and the door of the kitchen were locked. These two persons have been in the service of the countess for twenty years, and are above suspicion. The question is, how did Denegra leave the apartment? Did he have another key? These are matters that the police will investigate. As a matter of fact, the police investigation threw no light on the mystery. It was learned that Victor de Negra was a dangerous criminal, a drunkard, and a debauchee. But as they proceeded with the investigation, the mystery deepened and new complications arose. In the first place, a young woman, Mademoiselle de Sancleve, the cousin and sole heiress of the Countess, declared that the Countess, a month before her death, had written a letter to her, and in it described the manner in which the Black Pearl was concealed. The letter disappeared the day after she received it. Who had stolen it? Again, the concierge related how she had opened the door for a person who had inquired for Dr. Arel. On being questioned, the doctor testified that no one had rung his bell. Then who was that person? An accomplice? The theory of an accomplice was thereupon adopted by the press and public, and also by Ganimard, the famous detective. Lupin is at the bottom of this affair, he said to the judge. Bah! exclaimed the judge. You have Lupin on the brain. You see him everywhere. I see him everywhere, because he is everywhere. Say, rather, that you see him every time you encounter something you cannot explain. Besides, you overlook the fact that the crime was committed at twenty minutes past eleven in the evening, as is shown by the clock, while the nocturnal visit, mentioned by the concierge, occurred at three o'clock in the morning. Officers of the law frequently form a hasty conviction as to the guilt of a suspected person, and then distort all subsequent discoveries to conform to their established theory. The deplorable antecedents of Victor Danagre, habitual criminal, drunkard, and rake, influenced the judge, and despite the fact that nothing new was discovered in corroboration of the early clues, his official opinion remained firm and unshaken. He closed his investigation, and a few weeks later the trial commenced. It proved to be slow and tedious. The judge was listless, and the public prosecutor presented the case in a careless manner. Under those circumstances, de Negra's counsel had an easy task. He pointed out the defects and inconsistencies of the case for the prosecution, and argued that the evidence was quite insufficient to convict the accused. Who had made the key? The indispensable key, without which de Negra, on leaving the apartment, could not have locked the door behind him? Who had ever seen such a key? and what had become of it? Who had seen the assassin's knife, and where was it now? In any event, argued the prisoner's counsel, the prosecution must prove, beyond any reasonable doubt, that the prisoner committed the murder. The prosecution must show that the mysterious individual who entered the house at three o'clock in the morning is not the guilty party. 
To be sure, the clock indicated eleven o'clock, but what of that? I contend that proves nothing. The assassin could turn the hands of the clock to any hour he pleased, and thus deceive us in regard to the exact hour of the crime. Victor de Negra was acquitted. He left the prison on Friday about dusk in the evening, weak and oppressed by his six months' imprisonment. The Inquisition, the solitude, the trial, the deliberations of the jury combined to fill him with a nervous fear. At night he had been afflicted with terrible nightmares and haunted by weird visions of the scaffold. He was a mental and physical wreck. Under the assumed name of Anatole Dufour, he rented a small room on the heights of Montmartre and lived by doing odd jobs wherever he could find them. He led a pitiful existence. Three times he obtained regular employment, only to be recognized and then discharged. Sometimes he had an idea that men were following him, detectives, no doubt, who were seeking to trap and denounce him. He could almost feel the strong hand of the law clutching him by the collar. One evening, as he was eating his dinner at a neighboring restaurant, a man entered and took a seat at the same table. He was a person about forty years of age, and wore a frock coat of doubtful cleanliness. He ordered soup, vegetables, and a bottle of wine. After he had finished his soup, he turned his eyes on Danègre, and gazed at him intently. Danègre winced. He was certain that this was one of the men who had been following him for several weeks. What did he want? Danègre tried to rise, but failed. His limbs refused to support him. The man poured himself a glass of wine, and then filled Danègre's glass. The man raised his glass and said, To your health, Victor Denere. Victor started in alarm and stammered, I, I, no, no, I swear to you. You will swear what? That you are not yourself? The servant of the Countess? What servant? My name is Dufour. Ask the proprietor. Yes, Anatole Dufour to the proprietor of this restaurant, but Victor Denegre to the officers of the law. That is not true. Someone has lied to you. The newcomer took a card from his pocket and handed it to Victor, who read on it, Grimoudon, ex-inspector of the detective force, private business transacted. Victor shuddered as he said, You are connected with the police? No, not now, but I have a liking for the business, and I continue to work at it in a manner more profitable. From time to time I strike upon a golden opportunity, such as your case presents. My case? Yes, yours. I assure you it is a most promising affair, provided you are inclined to be reasonable. But if I am not reasonable? Oh, my good fellow, you are not in a position to refuse me anything I ask. What is it you want? stammered Victor fearfully. Well, I will inform you in a few words. I am sent by Mademoiselle de Sanclave, the heiress of the Countess d'Andieu. What for? To recover the black pearl. Black pearl? That you stole? But I haven't got it. You have it. If I had, then I would be the assassin. You are the assassin. The Negre showed a false smile. Fortunately for me, monsieur, the assize court was not of your opinion. The jury returned a unanimous verdict of acquittal, and when a man has a clear conscience and twelve good men in his favour... The ex-inspector seized him by the arm and said, No fine phrases, my boy. Now, listen to me and weigh my words carefully. You will find they are worthy of your consideration. Now, Danair, three weeks before the murder, you abstracted the cook's key to the servant's door 
and had a duplicate key made by a locksmith named Utal. 244 Rue Oberkopf. It's a lie! It's a lie! growled Victor. No person has seen that key. There is no such key. <laughs> Here it is. After a silence, Grimudon continued. You killed the Countess with a knife purchased by you at the Bazaar de la République on the same day as you ordered the duplicate key. It has a triangular blade with a groove running from end to end. That is all nonsense. You are simply guessing at something you don't know. No one ever saw the knife. Here it is. Victor Deneuve recoiled. The ex-inspector continued. There are some spots of rust upon it. Shall I tell you how they came there? Well, you have a key and a knife. Who can prove that they belong to me? The locksmith and the clerk from whom you bought the knife. I have already refreshed their memories, and when you confront them, they cannot fail to recognize you. His speech was dry and hard, with a tone of firmness and precision. De Negre was trembling with fear, and yet he struggled desperately to maintain an air of indifference. Is that all the evidence you have? Oh, no, not at all. I have plenty more. For instance, after the crime, you went out the same way you had entered, but in the centre of the wardrobe room, being seized by some sudden fear, you leaned against the wall for support. How do you know that? No one could know such a thing, argued the desperate man. The police know nothing about it, of course. They never think of lighting a candle and examining the walls. But if they had done so, they would have found on the white plaster a faint red spot, quite distinct, however, to trace in it the imprint of your thumb, which you had pressed against the wall while it was wet with blood. Now, as you are well aware, under the Bertillon system, thumb marks are one of the principal means of identification. Victor de Negre was livid. Great drops of perspiration rolled down his face and fell upon the table. He gazed with a wild look at the strange man who had narrated the story of his crime as faithfully as if he had been an invisible witness to it. Overcome and powerless, Victor bowed his head. He felt that it was useless to struggle against this marvellous man. So he said, How much will you give me if I give you the pearl? Nothing. Ah, you are joking. Or do you mean that I should give you an article worth thousands and hundreds of thousands to get nothing in return? You will get your life. Is that nothing? The unfortunate man shuddered. Then Grimudon added in a milder tone, Come, Denegr, that pearl has no value in your hands. It is quite impossible for you to sell it. So what is the use of your keeping it? There are pawnbrokers, and some day I will be able to get something for it. But that day may be too late. Why? Because by that time you may be in the hands of the police, and with the evidence that I can furnish, the knife, the key, the thumb mark, what will become of you? Victor rested his head on his hands and reflected. He felt that he was lost. Irremediably lost, and at the same time a sense of weariness and depression overcame him. He murmured faintly, When must I give it to you? Tonight, within an hour. If I refuse... If you refuse, I shall post this letter to the Procureur of the Republic, in which letter Mademoiselle de Sancreve denounces you as the assassin. The Negler pulled out two glasses of wine which he drank in rapid succession, then, rising, said, Pay the bill, and let's go. I have had enough of this cursed affair. Night had fallen. 
The two men walked down the Rue Lepique and followed the exterior boulevards in the direction of the Place de l'Etoile. They pursued their way in silence. Victor had a stooping carriage and a dejected face. When they reached the Parc Monceau, he said, We are near the house. Parbleu, you only left the house once before your arrest, and that was to go to the tobacco shop. Here it is, said the Negre in a dull voice. They passed along the garden wall of the Countess's house and crossed the street on a corner of which stood the tobacco shop. A few steps further on, the Negre stopped. His limbs shook beneath him, and he sank to a bench. Well, what now? demanded his companion. It is there. Where? Come now, no nonsense. There, in front of us. Where? Between two paving stones. Which? Look for it. Which stones? Victor made no reply. Ah, I see, exclaimed Grimaudon. You want me to pay for the information? No, but I'm afraid I will starve to death. So that is why you hesitate. Well, we'll not be hard on you. How much do you want? Enough to buy a steerage pass to America. All right. And a hundred francs to keep me until I get work there. You shall have two hundred. Now, speak. Count the paving stones to the right from the sewer hole. The pearl is between the twelfth and the thirteenth. In the gutter? Yes, close to the sidewalk. Grimoudon glanced around to see if anyone were looking. Some tramcars and pedestrians were passing, but bah, they will not suspect anything. He opened his pocket knife and thrust it between the twelfth and thirteenth stones. And if it is not there, he said to Victor, it must be there, unless someone saw me stoop down and hide it. Could it be possible that the black pearl had been cast into the mud and filth of the gutter to be picked up by the first comer? The black pearl? A fortune? How far down? He asked. About ten centimetres. He dug up the wet earth. The point of his knife struck something. He enlarged the hole with his finger. Then he abstracted the black pearl from its filthy hiding place. Good. Here are your two hundred francs. I will send you the ticket for America. On the following day, this article was published in the Echo de France and was copied by the leading newspapers throughout the world. Yesterday, the famous Black Pearl came into the possession of Arsène Lupin, who recovered it from the murderer of the Countess d'Andieu. In a short time, facsimiles of that precious jewel will be exhibited in London, St. Petersburg, Calcutta, Buenos Aires, and New York. Arsène Lupin will be pleased to consider all propositions submitted to him through his agents. And that is how crime is always punished and virtue rewarded, said Arsène Lupin after he had told me the foregoing history of the Black Pearl. And that is how you, under the assumed name of Grimaudon, ex-inspector of detectives, were chosen by fate to deprive the criminal of the benefit of his crime. Exactly. And I confess that the affair gives me infinite satisfaction and pride. The forty minutes that I passed in the apartment of the Countess d'Andieu after learning of her death were the most thrilling and absorbing moments of my life. In those forty minutes, involved as I was in a most dangerous plight, I calmly studied the scene of the murder and reached the conclusion that the crime must have been committed by one of the house servants. I also decided that, in order to get the pearl, that servant must be arrested, and so I left the wainscot button. It was necessary also for me to hold some convincing evidence of his guilt, 
So I carried away the knife which I found upon the floor, and the key which I found in the lock. I closed and locked the door, and erased the finger marks from the plaster in the wardrobe closet. In my opinion, that was one of those flashes... Of genius, I said, interrupting. Of genius, if you wish, but I flatter myself it would not have occurred to the average mortal. To frame instantly the two elements of the problem, an arrest and an acquittal, to make use of the formidable machinery of the law to crush and humble my victim and reduce him to a condition in which, when free, he would be certain to fall into the trap I was laying for him. Poor devil. Poor devil, do you say? Victor Danègre was the assassin. He might have descended to the lowest depths of vice and crime if he had retained the Black Pearl. Now he lives. Think of that. Victor Danègre is alive. And you have the Black Pearl. He took it out of one of the secret pockets of his wallet, examined it, gazed at it tenderly, and caressed it with loving fingers, and sighed, as he said, What cold Russian prince, what vain and foolish Rajah, may someday possess this priceless treasure? Or perhaps some American millionaire is destined to become the owner of this morsel of exquisite beauty that once adorned the fair bosom of Leontine Zalti, the Countess d'Andieu. Have you checked out the website recently? If you haven't, make sure to go to anotherworldaudiobooks.com. I would love to give you a full free version of uh, one of the audiobooks that we have done. Uh, we've got the Another World Audiobooks Library, and you can check out all the books that we've done, and uh, you can send a request for, for any of those, and I would be happy to send you the full version. So uh, obviously listen to the podcast, listening on YouTube is fine, it's easy, but if you want the full version without any interruptions, then you can definitely get that just by uh, requesting it. So go to anotherworldaudiobooks.com, make that request, and I would be happy to send it your way. Thanks, guys, so much for listening, for leaving comments, for just interacting with the podcast it makes it more of a conversation i just really enjoy that and knowing that there's live humans on the other end of this microphone so thanks guys for listening and we'll catch you next week with the final chapter of arsene lupin of this first book of arsene lupin hope you guys have enjoyed it and we'll be getting uh, we'll be picking a new book so if you do have a suggestion on any new books you'd like to hear please leave those down below or shoot me an email at otherworldaudiobooks at gmail.com i'd love to hear from you thanks guys for listening and we'll catch you next week